0: Okay, we're going to read now from from the Bible, and we're going to read uh, Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 to 25. And it's on page 76 in the Red Bibles, if you've got one of those. So on the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt... On that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Make them wash their clothes. And be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, with a thick cloud over the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people, so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you. the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Let's just pray for Adrian as he comes to speak to us now. Father God, thank you for the time and uh, preparation that um, Adrian has put in this week as he's prayed through and and pondered on your word. Um, that you would speak through him and
1: that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to respond to your message. Amen. Thanks Debbie. Uh, good afternoon everyone. Good to see you all. Uh, thanks for being here today. Please have Exodus 19 open uh, so you can uh, look, look along with me again. Um, good. Uh, now today we'll watch the coronation. Maybe the question is, did anyone not watch the coronation? (laughs) Maybe that's... Yeah, we we went to a friend's house and kind of were running around with the kids at the same time, so we caught glimpses at least. But it was a kind of momentous occasion, wasn't it? It, There was a real kind of uh, sense of ceremony and a special moment in time uh, as as all that happened. But just imagine for a second that the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, turned up uh, in shorts and blip-flops uh, and he's kind of shrugging his shoulders so he's got a Diet Coke in his hand uh, and saying alright, let's just get it over and done with shall we, let's get on with it it would be headline news wouldn't it, like what's he thinking what is he doing, he is not offering the new king the reverence the, the respect that he would be expected uh, on that occasion uh, however you feel about the king there was this sense, wasn't there, of history of importance uh, and Many people uh, honoured the king and gave him reverence and respect uh, during the, the ceremony. But it made me think about God. It made me think about, about God because if King Charles, let's be honest, his reign is going to be measured in, in years, maybe decades. How do we approach the, the king who created everything and exists forever, all of time? How do we approach that, that God? the true gods. Do we come with reverence and honour, or do we kind of not? <laughs> do we, uh, you know, in our hearts, we're, we're not revering him, we're, we're not kind of treating him like he deserves? And does it even matter? That's what we're going to try and sort of drill into and think about today as we look at this passage. Uh, it's going to help us see why it's so important how we come, come before God. Now, this moment in Exodus chapter 19 has been a long time coming. Uh, in fact, it goes all the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, if you read that, you see God choosing Abraham and making this amazing covenant promise uh, with him that, that he will bless Abraham's descendants, make them into a great nation, give them a land. Uh, and we, we're then following that all the way through scripture, kind of the story of God's people, the descendants uh, of Abraham. The ones who end up in in Egypt to escape that great famine. And uh, as we get to Exodus, 400 years have gone past and God's people have become the 12 tribes of Israel and they've also become slaves and they're trapped and they're oppressed and they're crying out and God is the one who hears and responds and remembers his promise made to Abraham, sends Moses as his prophet and leads the people out out of Egypt. But if you go back to Exodus chapter 3, you see a really important moment. Exodus 3, chapter 12. This is what God says to Moses as he's sort of telling Moses what to do. I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. On this mountain, remember that. Lots of time has passed since Moses uh, sort of was commissioned by God. Uh, Egypt has been decimated by plagues. Pharaoh has been humiliated. The Israelites have been led out in victory into the desert. They've been grumbling and uh, struggling through that. But God has provided and God has led them uh, all the way to this point. And as you see at the start of chapter 19, they reach uh, the mountain uh, of Sinai, which is the mountain of God. The mountain where Moses met God in the first place, in the burning bush. they've, They've kind of gone full circle and they're back at the mountain. It's it's an amazing moment, because right from chapter 3 it's been promised, and here it is, God's saying, look, I told you, you would be here to worship me. And so these next few chapters of Exodus are really crucial, really essential to uh, what it means uh, to be God's people. It's a crucial moment in in their lives. God has rescued them and redeemed them, and now he's saying, this is what it means to be my people, this is what it means to follow me. So that's what we're going to be thinking about today, uh, and looking at uh, who God is. The first thing we see is a covenant promise, a covenant promise. Moses is continuing his role as messenger, as prophet. Uh, He's the one that that has to go up and down the mountain a whole lot of times. Uh, And God is the one who speaks to him and gives him uh, the messages for the people. And there's a really clear, bold message, isn't there, right there at the start of the chapter, verse 4. Uh, Look at what God says. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenants, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation.
0: These
1: crucial words. And Do you see what God focuses on? It focuses on what he has done, doesn't it? What I did to Egypt, he says. How I carried you out, and I brought you to myself. The people needed to remember what's just happened. They couldn't kind of give themselves any credit for, for the way they've come out of Egypt. It, they have clearly seen that, that God is the one who has done that for them. He has brought them out of Egypt and rescued them from, from Pharaoh. He's carried them on eagle's wings. It's a great picture, isn't it? Uh, eagle is a mighty, strong bird, a fierce uh, bird of prey, and yet one who also protects and cares for its young. So it's this picture of God's strength and also his care. And that's how he's brought the people out with his strength and with his care. And he's brought them to himself. We saw that happening. We saw the Passover, where they sacrificed the lambs and they painted the blood on the door frames. And they, the, the lamb was sacrificed in place of their firstborn children. And the people were redeemed. They were bought and, and rescued from that land. And redeemed and brought all the way to this point. And God said, remember, don't forget, don't lose sight of what I have done for you. And what has he done? He has shown them such grace and such mercy, hasn't he? They are, have not deserved these things. They are filled with doubt. They are hard of heart. And yet, God has loved them and God has saved them. So it's like, remember the grace I've shown to you. And then notice the, the promise that, that kind of is reiterated. It's not, it's not, it, it follows on, you know, it's connected back to the, the promise made to Abraham. And it's God saying, will you respond rightly? Will you, will you respond to the love and grace you've been shown? By obeying me, by, by doing what uh, I command you to do. Will you love me in response? And you see what he says? If you do that, you'll be my treasured possession. (coughs) In other words, they belong to the king. Uh, We saw lots of treasured possessions yesterday, didn't we? If you were watching the coronation, lots of gold plates. There was that little table with all these gold shiny things on that probably stored away most of the time, but these treasured possessions come out just a little bit. That's not quite how it works with God. To be God's people, God's treasured possession to belong to the Lord so much greater, so much better than that they are a special nation uh, it says they are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation it means they're kind of set apart they're, they're, they're different to the nations around them and they are priests uh, and what, that, what it's kind of getting at is the fact that they're the ones who kind of show God to the other nations explain what God is like and show them what God has done this is the promise I'm making what would you say what would you say in response see what they say, do you see what they say in verse 8 we will do everything the Lord has said I mean you couldn't probably say anything else could you, (laughs) of course they're going to say yes of course we'll do this it's a good answer but of course the proof is then in what they do, we'll see but actually do you see this moment of covenant promise is something we also see playing out in the gospel today The Exodus is just a picture of that greater rescue of Jesus. That actually God saves us through Christ. He saves us through Christ's sacrifice. He makes us his people despite our sin. He shows us grace. He shows us care. It's an amazing reality. We have that same question. What's our response going to be? Will we obey? Will we trust him? Will we do what he says? Will we respond to his love by loving him in return? Now, I'm sure for many of us here, we have said, yes, we want to follow Christ. Yes, we're going to do that. But the same question remains: how deeply do we mean that? How deeply have we understood what that means? Have we understood how important it is to kind of live out our faith, to show what it means to us? Because we are saved by grace, aren't we? If we're saved by grace, then it doesn't matter what we do afterwards, does it? Well, actually, what we see in this passage reminds us that it really does. Because we see a holy God, we see a holy God. Look at verse nine. The Lord said to Moses, "I am going to come to you in a dense cloud, so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you." God is coming to His people. He's saying Look, it's more than just remembering what what I've done already. It's this key moment of covenant promise. I'm coming. I'm going to speak to my people from this cloud. And he says, why? He says, so that they trust Moses. Now that sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? Because you think, well, surely they want to be trusting God, not Moses. But remember, you look all the way through Exodus, you see Moses is God's mouthpiece, God's prophet, God's representative to the people. In other words, if they trust Moses, they're also trusting God. So that's what? God's sake. Actually, I'm going to come so that they trust me, so that they see my glory and my power and they trust me and they, they, they listen to Moses. It's going to be an incredible moment. They're, they're told to consecrate themselves. And that means to make themselves holy, to set themselves apart, to, to make themselves special. We don't know exactly what that meant at that moment, but there's a real in there of, of being clean. Uh, they're to wash their clothes, they're to, to not have sex. That's not saying that sex is sinful, it's just saying that, that there's this sense of kind of ceremonial uncleanness that comes out in the law later on, we'll see. It's it's just saying that prepare yourselves physically, spiritually. Be be ready to meet with God. And it's not just the people, is it? There's almost the mountain is prepared in some sense. they set these limits, they set these boundaries. It's like, don't come too close. This is going to be, this is holy ground. And there are serious consequences. Did you see the consequences there? If people come too close, whoever touches it must be put to death. It's that serious. They're not even allowed to touch the person. They have to stone them or kill them with arrows. They cannot touch them. It's like, if they touch this holy place, it's the end for them. It just shows how serious this moment is. It's going to be. It's a picture of God's incredible glory and God's holiness. Uh, it's kind of a picture of the tabernacle and the temple that comes later on. You've got the top of the mountain, the sort of holy of holy place that only Moses can, can go to. And then you've got a sort of, the, the priests are allowed a little bit closer and then the, the people stay at the bottom. It's, 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 it's a picture of showing God's glory. And then we see it, don't read verse 16. Look, just try and imagine this moment, if you are there. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. You read that, I, I get the sense that, that the writer is, is struggling to kind of express the awesome power that was on display here. This amazing moment, it's as if like the natural world can't really cope with God coming thunder and lightning and clouds and smoke and fire and the ground is trembling. There are these trumpet blasts. Uh, earlier in the service we read a bit from Revelation and actually you see a lot of the same imagery there in Revelation. There lots of places in scripture. But it's like God's presence there's this thunder and lightning this power and might and, and purity and holiness. And it's just a glimpse for them. You know that they're just seeing these clouds and hearing his voice. What's the people's response? You see at the end of verse 16? Everyone trembled. There's no other response. There's this fearful reality of God coming for his people. And now all of a sudden the restrictions make sense to me. Don't get too close. They realize why they not to get too close. Because God is holy. God is holy. Now, it's hard, isn't it, to explain what it means that God is holy? Because really what it's saying is that he's God. Uh, The word holy means to kind of be separate. We talk about holy things, it's kind of being separate, set apart for something special. Verse 6 talks about holy nation. How do you apply that to God? Because he's God. And, And that's the point, really. When we apply it to God, it shows us who he is. God is holy. It's the fact that he is God. He is separate from... Everything that isn't God. He is the creator. Everything else is created. He is one of a kind. There is nothing like him. He is pure and perfect and righteous and good and holy. He is God. So it's no wonder, is it, that when he appears, the people tremble as they as they hear his voice, as they experience the kind of powerful kind of outworkings of, of this moment. They're kind of exposed the power of God and the majesty and the purity and the holiness in contrast to their weakness and their sin. The people had grumbled their way through the desert. We've seen that in the last few chapters, haven't we? They had not been trusting God. And now they are confronted again with the holy reality of who God is. No wonder they'd be aware of maybe their failures, their sin, that there was nowhere to hide I think we struggle, don't we, maybe, to, to grasp what God's holiness is for us today. Have you ever stopped really to really contemplate it, to think about what it means for us? Actually, what happens when people realize God's holiness in Scripture is, uh, is quite, quite interesting. Here's uh, Isaiah chapter 6, it's a, a, a well known passage where he has a vision of God's throne room and he sees God's holiness, and this is what he says Woe to me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He seeks God for who he is, his holy perfection, and he says, I'm ruined. And that's the same for us. If we grasp who God is, grasp his holiness, we realise we are ruined. We are so far away from his perfection, his purity. We can't pretend, we can't escape. We are ruined. Imagine, I know you're on trial for some crime or another, and the evidence isn't all there. You think, actually, if I play my cards right, I'm going to get away with this. But then incontrovertible evidence appears, like certain proof, video, eyewitness, whatever it is, proof that you did it, and you're exposed, and there's nowhere to hide. That's a little bit like the reality of God's holiness. We can try and hide our sin all we like. We can pretend to other people that we're fine, that we're doing well, that we're not struggling all that much. And then we see the holiness of God. And it's like a bright shining light that exposes every dark corner of our hearts, every lie, every selfish moment, every moment of lust, every anger every angry time, every time we've been drunk, every bite we take in greed. Everything we worship in place of God, every sin, every evil thing, is kind of exposed. We realise how far we have fallen short of God's glory and His holiness. We like to compare ourselves to other people, don't we? we? Say, "Well, at least I'm not as bad as that person, not as bad as that person." We need to compare ourselves to the holiness of God. That's when we wake up that our sin is awful. And it exposes us, and we are left humiliated and shocked, and maybe fearful. It's a wake-up call. Actually, we need to pay attention to this. He knows everything about us, everything, and that should sober us. He knows the, 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 the hidden corners of our hearts that even we hide from everyone else. They are not hidden to God. He is perfect in holiness, and we are really not. So, what can we do? Where can we turn? What hope do we have? Surely, if we obey enough, then we're going to be okay, right? Surely, if we we do everything the Lord commands, then we'll be alright. That's what the people agreed to in the passage. We'll do everything the Lord says. There's a problem, isn't there? There's a problem because what we see is a a history of failure. A history of failure. It's a bit of a spoiler alert, but if you go through the rest of the Old Testament, if you skim through it, read through it, what you'll notice is just how often God's people end up turning away from him. They worship idols. They they ignore his law. They refuse to trust him. And in the end, they are exiled from the land. They haven't got to the land yet, so that's a definite spoiler alert, but they're going to be exiled. And this is why, it's 2 Kings 17, they would not listen were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. Their sin would not go away. It was a constant problem. They could not live up to God's holy standards. And that verse applies to us, doesn't it? We are just as stiff-necked as our ancestors. We do not trust the Lord our God as we should. It's a history of failure. Uh, And we break... God's promises. We, we do not keep uh, what we should. But God is different. God is holy. God is perfect. God keeps his end of the promise. He preserves his people through all, of, all that they go through. And then he makes a new promise. This, let me read you these verses from Jeremiah 31. There's kind of lots of... I'm going to just read a few verses from various places that just kind of unpacks this passage really well. Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord's, When I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins. See what it says? God's people broke the covenant. Even though God was a husband to them, they were unfaithful. They did not obey like they said they would in this chapter. So what happens? God just casts them out and has nothing more to do with them? No. He doesn't do that, does he? He promises a new covenant. A covenant that cannot be broken. He will write the law on their hearts. Their sins will be forgotten. And they will sort of have this sense of permanently knowing the Lord. Isn't that an amazing promise? Isn't that an amazing hope? And that's the hope that we have too. We have the new covenant in Christ. We shared the Lord's Supper earlier, didn't we? And we remembered Jesus' body and blood. And Jesus said about the the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. As Jesus died, as Jesus laid down his life, he made a new covenant for us. It was a covenant that declares it is finished. Our sin is dealt with. Uh, The punishment is taken by Christ completely. Our sins are forgotten forever. And there's a permanent declaration for those who trust Jesus. That they have been made right and they have been made holy. What an amazing thing this covenant is. I just want to, before I finish, I want to show you there's a few things that kind of, a few verses that unlock what, what the new covenant means for us in ways that tie it back to Exodus 19. Some of the, the things that, that are new about the covenant. So, a new identity. A new identity. <laughs> uh, we, we had these verses read earlier rather appropriately, 1 Peter 2. But you, talking about the church, are a chosen people, a royal priest of the holy nation, God's special possession. That's all the language there, isn't it, in the promise made in Exodus. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy promise that God makes to his people in Exodus 19 is fulfilled in the church God's people are now not just one nation but actually they are the new Israel the new Israel made up of people of all nations all tribes, all tongues everyone united by their need for God's grace and God's mercy and we move from darkness to light we are made holy by Jesus that is our identity now
0: we are God's
1: people and that cannot change a new identity and a new confidence. A new confidence. We'll take to the book of Hebrews, uh, verse 16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Before that verse, we're reminded that Jesus is our, our great high priest. He has not sinned, and yet he has been tempted. He can sympathise with our weaknesses. And he knows what we like and he has saved us and forgiven us. So we approach with confidence. Now that's an amazing thing, isn't it? We, we have seen the, the glory of, of, of God coming on that mountain. The fire, the smoke, the kind of trembling reaction of the people. We are exposed by God's holiness. But actually isn't it staggering to think we can come with confidence. Because actually if we're trusting in Jesus... When God's holiness shines on us and shines into our hearts, there's nothing. There there is no sin. It's been taken by Jesus already. And in in place we have got his perfect, holy righteousness. That's what is exposed. We come confidently because he has saved us. He welcomes us in. We can come confidently to God now. There's also a new mountain. A new mountain, that sounds a bit weird. But go with me here. I'm going to read some more from Hebrews. This is Hebrews chapter 12. And it really ties in nicely with Exodus, you'll see. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. That was what happened in Exodus 19. That was their their experience. But this is what it says in Hebrews 12. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. To the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I know there's a lot of complex ideas and, and imagery in there. But, but hopefully you see the big picture, the big idea. There's a new mountain we come to through Jesus. It's not a mountain of fear and terror, thanks to God's holiness. It's the Mount Zion. It, it's, the, it's heaven. It's the city of God. And what's it like? It's thousands of angels in joyful assembly. You come before God made perfect uh, because of the new covenant in Jesus. His blood makes all the difference to us. Basically, when I say new mountain, it's a picture of the hope that we have. The eternal destination, if we're trusting Jesus, is heaven. It's glory with him. What hope that gives us, that new mountain. But there's also a new warning. There's also a new warning. It goes on in Hebrews. See to it. That you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? There's lots of warnings in this passage, isn't there? There's lots of kind of moments <coughs> where you know God's saying, Don't come too close. Keep the boundaries, don't don't, don't. keep yeah, yeah, stay, stay, keep your distance. And then they're commanded to obey. They should have taken note. They should have over- obeyed. But they refused. They refused him. They did not do it. And that's a serious warning for us too, isn't it? It's the, it's almost a, when I say new warning, it's, like, it's even more serious for us. If we, if we do not listen to God, if we do not accept his offer of grace in Christ, we will not escape uh, the judgment of God. And that is deeply serious. So let me encourage you to, to think about that. We listen to God. We hear his voice. If you've got questions, please speak to me afterwards. Well I want to finish by, by, by this one, this point. The same reverence. The same reverence. So there's lots of new in the new covenant, but actually the way we come to God has not changed. Same reference. Hebrews twelve, right at the end of that passage. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, <clears throat> let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably, with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. God does not change. His holiness, his perfection, it's exactly the same as it was that day on the mountain. Which means that, yes, we have a new identity, we have new confidence, we have a new destination, we have new hope. But we continue to worship him with reverence, with, with awe. We don't approach him casually. Because he is the Holy Lord. Now, he's also our father, isn't he? I think, well, if he's our father, doesn't that mean we can kind of come casually? I thought actually Prince William made quite a good example of that in the coronation. Because there was that moment, wasn't it, he had to sort of come up to the front. and uh, I couldn't hear what he was saying because it was too loud in the room, but I think was, he was sort of pledging allegiance to the king. And in some sense he came confidently, didn't he? Because it's his dad. He, he, he knows what, 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 that his dad's not going to sort of do anything. But there was also reverence because his dad is the king. So it's, it's, it's that mix, isn't it? He is, God is our father, and we come to him, and he loves us like a father. He is also our king. So we come humbly and reverently in awe. So, how do we do that? How do we come with reverence? Do we have to kind of keep consecrating ourselves like Israel did? We have to wash our clothes and make sure we're tidy and smart. On a Sunday? Is that what we're talking about? Not quite. Because it's a matter of the heart. We revere God from our hearts. He's the one who changes our hearts. We, all we can see is the outward appearance of people, can't we? we? We cannot look deep inside, but the Lord does. Actually, it's not really about what we wear. You could wear shorts and flip-flops and come with reverence in your heart. You could come dressed to the nines with a suit and all the smart things and have no desire to really meet with God. It's much deeper than how we dress and and what we look like. It's an internal thing. It's it's reflecting, meditating on, on God's goodness, on who he is, his holiness, his might, his power. It's being in awe of his love and his grace and how much he has shown us patience and grace. It's the love and obedience we do in response to that. It's coming... God prepared for worship. We don't just come on a Sunday because it's part of our routine. We we come expecting to hear from him, expecting to to meet with him. We we meet with the God, the Holy God, who was on that mountain. We don't want to take that lightly, do we? We want to, 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 to come carefully. Maybe to spend time before we come to church thinking about what Christ has done for us. We have been saved by grace. Let's be very clear on that we are saved by grace, and how we live out response it shows our understanding of that, doesn't it? That's why we are called to revere. It shows that we really understood the gospel. Because if we get the holiness of God and the depth of our sin and the weight of our fall and just how far we have fallen short, then we start going, "Wow, I've been saved. I've been loved by God. Despite that." That's when we come with humility, with thankfulness. That's when we come not taking it for granted, not casually, but humbly and reverently. There's loads more, I'm sure. Maybe we'll think more about that in our home groups, about practical outworkings. What does it mean to, to revere God? I've spoken more than enough today. We're going to respond in song. We're going to sing the song, Come Praise and Glorify Our, our Gods. It's... Often the song we sing at the start of the service, right? Because so it's a come praise and glorify. So why are we singing it at the end? Well, think about it. We we are singing come praise and glorify to each other. to so come and worship
0: around the throne.
1: to so come and give him the glory he deserves. It works just as well at the end as it does at the start. So.